Good morning, loved ones. I'm so happy that we have this time together, and I pray that wherever you are today, this will just be a time of blessing and that you will feel the Lord's presence with you. Won't you join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our study of Matthew. Father, Son, and Spirit, Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time that we have to study your holy word. And we pray, God, that you will just open our ears and open our hearts, that you will increase our understanding and our belief, and that you will empower us to follow you more humbly, more faithfully, and more obediently. We make this prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. And so today, loved ones, we're coming to one of my favorite passages in Matthew's Gospel, and that is the depiction of Jesus's miraculous calming of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And I know that this is a text that's familiar to all of us. Surely all of you have heard any number of sermons on this passage, and I don't doubt that those sermons were encouraging and uplifting messages to listen to. But there is something incredibly mind-blowing that I really want to share with you today, and that is this. This passage is not what we might think that it's about. And I can't speak for all of you, but just speaking for myself, for a long time I've read this passage and I would walk away from it thinking that somehow Jesus's miraculous stilling of this storm translated and meant that somehow he would calm the storms of my life. And as I've grown and as I've learned more and as I've studied, I realized that that view is far too narrow. And I've realized that such a view inappropriately focuses the attention of the text on me instead of on Jesus. And I've learned that this passage is about something much more amazing and something much more incredible than me and whatever I might be going through in my life. And we have to remember that up to this point, Matthew has been presenting to us a series of miracles and encounters that further reveal to us Jesus's identity as God and Messiah. And this scene is no exception. We are to walk away from this passage with a better understanding of who Jesus is and what his power and his authority is. And to help us better see this today as we go through this study. I want us to jump to the end of the passage, and I want us to use the question that the disciples asked as a framework for us to build from. And the question that we find at the end of the passage is, who is this man? Who is this man? And as we go through the text today, we're going to see three things about Jesus. We're going to see that he is the man to follow, that Jesus is the man who can save, and that Jesus is God. And so let's jump into the text and let's see what this is all about. Let's pick up in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 23, and it says this. As Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and a great storm developed on the sea so that the waves began to swamp the boat. But Jesus was asleep. So they came and they woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We are about to die. But he said to them, Why are you cowardly, you people of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it was dead calm. And the men were amazed at this and said, What sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea 
obey him. And so when we last left off, loved ones, we saw Jesus was leaving Peter's house and leaving the crowds and that he was moving toward the shore to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And on the way to the boat, Jesus told those who wished to follow him that they must indeed follow him, they must uh, trust him, and they must prioritize him. And here in verse 23, very simply, Matthew tells us what happens next. We're told Jesus got into the boat and that the disciples followed him. Now, we're not told yet who these disciples are, but there's a few things that we can keep in mind here. First of all, we have to remember Jesus didn't own a boat. And so we can imagine that he's probably using one that belonged to either Peter or Andrew or James and John. And so we can safely assume that at least these four men are with him. And with that, from the size that these boats were, we know that they only had a capacity of about 12 or 13 people. And so I think it's very safe for us us to imagine here that when we see the word disciples here, it's referring to the 12 disciples that we're going to be seeing a lot more of as we continue forward. But all of that is secondary to what I really want us to see here. Look again at verse 23 and how Matthew describes this scene. Jesus gets in first and then the disciples follow him. Now remember, this is not Jesus's boat. Jesus is not the captain of this vessel. Matter of fact, we don't even know if Jesus has any background in fishing or in boating. He grew up in Nazareth, a place that is pretty well removed from any body of water. Jesus was a builder. He was a carpenter. And yet here he is getting on this boat like he is the one in charge, like the boat is his. And what do the disciples do? Well, they follow him. Why? Because they know that he is worth following and they know that they must follow him. If he's getting on the boat, then they must too. They're going wherever he leads them. And this is exactly right in line with what we've seen previously in verses 18 through 22. If you remember there, it was Jesus who gave the command to go to the other side of the lake, and the disciples followed along with him. Given everything that they have seen and heard up to this point, the disciples know that they must follow Jesus. And we see that they do indeed follow him. They trusted Jesus enough to get into the boat, but it's at that moment that things begin to get exciting. It goes on and we're told in verse 24 that as they were crossing the Sea of Galilee, there arose a great storm. And that phrase in and of itself isn't really anything unusual. Due to a combination of factors, storms were a normal thing. They were a normal occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. But the text shows us that this was no ordinary storm. There was something incredibly unique about this storm. In the Greek, Matthew writes and tells us that this storm was a seismos Magos. Now, we all know what the word magos means. It means mega. It means big. It means huge. But the word seismos 
does not mean anything related to storms or tempest or anything of that sort. We see this word seismos a number of times in the New Testament, but as it happens, this is the only instance in which the word seismos is translated as storm. Everywhere else in the New Testament, this word seismos means earthquake. Think of it, seismograph, seismology, seismic. This is the same word that we later see in the Gospels when we're told of the earthquake that happened at Jesus' crucifixion. It's the same word that we see when the earthquake hits on the morning of Jesus' resurrection. And so Matthew is telling us that a huge earthquake occurred beneath the Sea of Galilee, and the result was that there were huge waves crashing about the boat. And the vessel is being swamped. It's being tossed about. It's groaning under the stress of the turmoil, and they are all in very real danger of sinking. But what is Jesus doing? He's asleep. He's asleep because he's not worried. He knows who's in charge. He's asleep because he knows what's going on, and he's asleep because his faith is firm and secure. And as we're going to see in just a moment, Jesus is asleep because this is nothing new to him. In fact, we're going to see that Jesus has been in this exact same situation before, and that's why he's not worried about a thing here. But before I tell you about that, let's first go on and let's look at how the disciples react to this event. And as we look at verses 25 and 26, we see that the disciples have the complete opposite reaction of Jesus' response. While he is calmly and securely sleeping amid the waves, the disciples are thinking that this is the end. And yet this is another clue to us of the very unique nature of this seismos magos. Let's remember something. Storms are a normal occurrence on the Sea of Galilee. They are routine. And if you grew up in that area, you would be used to them. And we know that at least four of these men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, we know that they are fishermen, meaning that they spend each and every day on this sea. They spend a lot of time there. Their livelihoods depend upon it. And surely they have seen everything that the Sea of Galilee can throw at them. Without a doubt, these men have all weathered many storms in their boats. And yet here in this event, these men are losing their minds. Every shred of confidence and experience they've got is gone, and they are all convinced that they are going to die. And surely such seasoned men would not be responding in this way if this was a typical routine storm. And so they go and they wake Jesus up and they say, do something. Save us, Lord. Don't you know that we are perishing? Don't you see what's happening, Lord? Do something about it. And oh my goodness, this phrase, save us, Lord, this plea, this is a loaded statement. If you were a Hebrew of Matthew's day, when you heard this phrase, save us, Lord, many things would come 
to mind. You would have heard another similar plea for desperation. That phrase, Lord, Lord, that we studied in previous chapters. That uh, plea that is cried out in pain and anguish when someone is at the end of their ropes, when they know that only God is there and they turn to him and ask for his intervention and his salvation. You would have heard that. But along with that, you have also would have heard echoes of a refrain that repeat again and again throughout the scriptures. You would have heard that phrase, save us, Lord, that was cried out by the righteous and by the prophets and all those who loved God during the times of oppression and punishment that were brought upon Israel because of their wickedness. It makes us think of 1 Samuel 7, 8. The Israelites said to Samuel, keep crying out to the Lord our God so that he will save us from the hand of the Philistines. 1 Chronicles 16.35, save us, O God, our salvation, and gather us together and deliver us that we may give thanks to your holy name. Isaiah 25.9, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Again, Isaiah 33.32, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. The Lord will save us. So throughout the scriptures, we see again and again that the righteous know that God is always faithful and that they could cry out to him, that they could call upon his name, upon his reputation for saving, and that he would do just that. And this is the very thing that we see the disciples here doing. We see them demonstrating some amount of understanding that Jesus can save them. But the question is, do they really believe it? Do they really trust that Jesus can get them out of this? Sure, they had enough faith and trust to get into the boat with Jesus. But right here, here at the first hiccup, here at the first trial, here at the first test, the disciples appear not to have enough faith or trust to uh, believe that they'll get to the other side. And Jesus calls them out for this. He says, why are you so afraid, you men of little faith? And let's think about Jesus's question in the light of everything that we have seen up to this point. By this time, in Matthew's account, the disciples have seen people healed by Jesus. They've seen him preach and teach like no one else. They've seen him do things that only God can do, heal a leper, heal from a distance. They've seen him reverse the curse through his healings and his casting out of demons. They've seen multitudes of people flock to Jesus to follow him. But here in the middle of this seismos magos, it's as if the disciples have forgotten everything. And Jesus says to them, don't you get it yet? Don't you understand yet? Don't you see yet? Don't you see who I am? Do you realize why I'm here yet? Do you think God would allow me to do everything that you've seen me do and to allow me to call you to follow me just for all of us to die here on this lake? Why is your faith so shaky? 
Why is your faith so weak? Why is there a disconnect between what you say you believe with your mouth and what you believe in your head and in your heart? And that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's getting at the quality of the disciples' faith, not the quantity of their faith. Yes, they're showing some amount of faith that he can do something simply by the fact that they ask him to do it. But it's as though even while they're asking Jesus to intervene, they doubt that he can do anything about it. And so Jesus, ever the teacher, he shows the disciples why they have no reason to fear or to doubt. And once again, Jesus displays his authority, this time over nature, by rebuking the sea and the wind. And the picture that we get is that Jesus spoke to the wind and to the sea the same way that a parent might speak to a child who's misbehaving. He stands up and he says, be quiet, be still, cut that out. He gave them that look, you know, that a stern parent would give you when you're, dis, uh, when you're doing something you shouldn't be. And instantly, there was calm. The chaos and the thrashing ended, and everything was still. And that brings us to this question that the disciples asked, that we have been using this morning as a guide, as a framework, as we've studied this passage. Matthew tells us in verse 27 that after witnessing Jesus give this command to the wind and the sea, the disciples look at each other and they ask themselves, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? And that is the question, is it not? Who is this man who can do these things? Who is this man who has authority over nature? This man who can sleep soundly in the midst of a catastrophic event? And there is only one answer. This man is God. There truly is no other explanation other than this. And again, let's consider everything that we have seen up to this point, everything that Jesus has done so far. Time and time again, Jesus has done things that only God could do. He healed a leper, something only God could do. He healed from a distance simply by speaking, something only God could do. He undid the effects of the curse and reversed it, something that only God could do. And here Jesus commands nature and tells nature what to do. And again, that is something only God could do. And all of this makes sense, does it not? It makes sense, does it not, that Jesus would have authority over nature because after all, he is the one who created it. And obviously, creation recognized Jesus' authority over him because the seas and the winds obeyed him. And had the disciples been thinking about the scriptures, they would have been able to answer their question before they even asked it, for they would have seen what was going on here in this event. They would have seen that Jesus was in familiar territory, and indeed he was. A few moments ago, I said that Jesus had been here before. Now, let me explain how that is. If you look back at Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says this, The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, 
and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And embedded in this idea of the darkness covering the deep waters is the idea that the deep waters are troubled. They are tumultuous. They are chaotic. And there above the chaos of the deep waters was God's Spirit. And he was completely unfazed by the chaos. And God was so unfazed by the chaos that he was Rahav over the water. He was fluttering or hovering over the water. Or better yet, the same word Rahav means relaxed. God was relaxed above the chaos waters in Genesis chapter 1. And that sounds familiar to us, does it not? God being relaxed above the chaos waters? Because here in Matthew, we see Jesus recreates this same scene by sleeping through this chaotic seismos magos on the Sea of Galilee. And by demonstrating his power over nature, Jesus is showing us that he is the creator himself. He is the one whose spirit was relaxed above the chaos of the pre-created world. He is the creator in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us in the most literal sense. Jesus is the one who, according to Proverbs 8, established the horizon on the ocean. The one who sets the limits of the oceans and tells them not to pass that line. It was Jesus who spoke to Job and said, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? And goes on to say to Job that I am the one who keeps the seas inside its boundaries as it bursts from the womb. And I clothe the sea with clouds and wrap it in thick darkness. For I locked the seas behind barred gates, limiting its shores. And I say, this far and no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. It was Jesus who did these things because Jesus is God. He is the creator. And here he is on this boat showing the disciples exactly who he is. And so the question for us today is, what does all of this mean? What does Jesus's power and his authority over nature mean for us today? And if this passage is not about Jesus calming the storms of our life, then what in the world is it about? And let's start by saying this. Jesus never promised to calm the storms of our lives. He never did that. He did promise to be with us through every trial and every tribulation and every test that we have to go through, but he never promised to make these things go away. As a matter of fact, Jesus told us that if we follow him, then we're going to have more headache and strife and chaos in this world because everyone and the devil himself is going to be coming after us with everything they've got. And truth be told, we need storms in this life. We need adversity. We need crisis. We need heartache and hardship because it's during those times that our faith grows. It's during those times that our faith deepens. We don't grow during easy times. Faith only grows when we are tossed about 
and pushed to our breaking points. We also have to realize how selfish it is for us to make this passage about Jesus, excuse me, to make this passage about us and what Jesus can do for us. Loved ones, we have to remember the Bible is not about us. The Bible is about Jesus. And for us to read our Bibles and to only be concerned with what Jesus can do for us is to belittle Jesus into a genie in a bottle. But we have to remember, Jesus did not come here to die to give us three wishes and an easy life. Jesus came here to die to make us holy. And that is what this passage is about. This text this passage is about Jesus, this man who has unrivaled and unparalleled authority, this man who is literally God in the flesh. It's about the creator coming here to the created world to save his most prized creation, which is us. This passage is about God coming here to do for us what we cannot do ourselves, him coming here to fix us, to undo our sinful nature, to atone for our rebellion, and to make us right with him so that we can be with him. This text is about God, the same God who separated the waters from the dry land, the same God who brought order to the chaos, the same God who flooded the world, the same God who parted the Red Sea to save his people, the same God who keeps the very seas themselves contained within their boundaries. This text is about that God who took off his majesty and his glory and his honor to put on human flesh created out of dust for the sole purpose of being beaten and humiliated and reviled and killed just so he could show us how much he loves us and how much he wants us to be with him. And so, no loved ones, this text is not about the storms of our lives. It's not about us because that is far too short-sighted and is far too self-centered. This text is about the creator himself coming to save us and to redeem us and to make us holy. And loved ones, if we are children of a God who loves us that much, then what have we to fear? Would you pray with us? Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for Christ, and we thank you for the authority that you gave him, and we thank you, Father, for sending him here indeed to redeem us, to ransom us, to bring us back to you. So, Father, as we look at this passage and see how Jesus reveals his identity as God, as creator, and as he demonstrates his authority over all of creation, help us to marvel at the fact that he would willingly come here for us, to die for us, to save us from our wickedness and from our sin. And help that, Lord, overwhelm us with a depth of love and devotion that cannot be surpassed. Father, help us to love you more. Help us to love Christ more. Put your spirit within us, Lord, and empower us to be more faithful. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.